This is They Create Worlds, episode 151, Grand Theft Auto 1. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Today, we are going to be looking at a wonderful time as criminals. We're going to be stealing cars, stealing this, stealing that, taking out hits, getting all the money, robbing things. But first, we're going to rob you, the listener, of your expectations by telling you sad, sad news. Wait, people that listen to us have expectations? Supposedly, yes. Now I'm nervous. Now I'm not sure I can continue this. Oh, just wait until I do something horrible like record every one of our recording sessions and then cut up highlight reels to throw on YouTube. Yes, that does sound terrifying. But instead, we are going to terrify you in other ways. And how we're going to do that is to regretfully tell you that there will be no big, long marathon recording session that we stream this year, unfortunately. Yes, that's right. It was a rather crazy second part of the year. As I think everybody knows, I ended up moving halfway across the country from St. Louis area to Atlanta, Georgia. So just with all of that craziness before, during, and after, there really wasn't time to do the massive prep necessary and get everything rolling to do one of our big three-parters and do a live stream this year. Went ahead and gave that one a miss, but we'll definitely be back with that next year as per tradition. Hopefully this time with the summer. Yeah, something like that. We're going to go steal some cars in video games because that's the best way to steal cars legally. Legally stealing cars. Yes, well, I mean, technically then they're not cars, which is why it's legal. Oh, right. Hmm. As we all know, Rockstar invented Grand Theft Auto and brought forth a new age of glory onto the people. Well, not exactly. The creation of the original Grand Theft Auto is a semi-complicated story that involves a large number of players, and it was a game that was a cult hit, did okay, but certainly did not in any way light the world on fire. Its sequel basically vanished into the ether, didn't really do much business at all. The people who played it liked it, but that really wasn't a huge number of people. And that really could have been it for this uh, Grand Theft Auto series. A couple of top-down, 2D graphic, rip-off cars and race-around-the-city kind of games. But of course, it didn't end up being that way because they ended up taking all that they learned on the first two games, applying it to the fastly expanding medium of three-dimensional polygonal graphics and fully realized three-dimensional worlds, and uh, gave us Grand Theft Auto 3 to launch a franchise that is still one of the absolute biggest in all of video gaming and is easily one of the most influential series in all of video gaming as well. So if Rockstar didn't invent them, and it started off as a piddly top-down 2D-ish Rob my car and go on a killing spree. How did it start? Well, to understand the beginning of the game, 
Grand Theft Auto. We need to understand a little bit about the company that it came from, which was a Scottish developer by the name of DMA Design. DMA was established by an individual by the name of David Jones in collaboration with some of his close friends, including Steve Hammond, Russell Kay, and Mike Daly. These individuals all hailed from the town of Dundee in Scotland, which had been an industrial town, but had really fallen on pretty hard times by the beginning of the 1980s. It was kind of a hard scrabble place. However, one employer that did remain in the area was Timex, which had a large factory there. And this was, in fact, the Timex factory where Sir Clive Sinclair, rest in peace, was having his ZX Spectrum manufactured. So in that sense, Dundee was somewhat at the heart of the uh, computer industry. I mean, the computers were not being designed there. There weren't really developers there, but the computer that launched the bedroom coding revolution of Britain was being built there. Because it was being built there, it was also a place that had some computer courses and whatnot in schools fairly early on using those ZX Spectrums, because, of course, the factory's right there. David Jones was a guy that got very interested in this computer scene and in the game scene, as is usually the case in these days when you become interested in that kind of scene. You also become interested in in learning how to use the machines and designing games and all of that good stuff as well, which just because it, as we've talked about before, it took so much technical interest to even get anything out of the machines of that time period that if you were fiddling around with it, chances are you would become interested in doing more than just playing the games. That's the whole bedroom coder revolution in Britain in a nutshell, which we've talked about before. David Jones was a massive, massive coin-op fan, particularly of the Twitch action games, the shooters, games like Galaga, and a little later on, Gradius and Salamander and all of these kind of shoot 'em ups That was his jam. So he started fiddling around with these computers, and he started going to this local computer club called the Kingsway Amateur Computer Club, which met at Kingsway Technical College in Dundee. This is where he met some of these other people, Steve Hammond, Russell Kay, started going there around 1983, just to set this in time. Mike Daly shows up in 1984, kind of a 14-year-old prodigy who starts hanging out with these people as well. At the same time, David Jones actually gets himself a job as an engineering apprentice at the Timex factory. He is involved with the company that is building the Spectrum at the same time that he is starting to explore all of this computer stuff at the computer club. He's interested in becoming a computer engineer. He messes around eventually with college in the local area again, though really he's spending all of his time playing with these computers. He's not really focused on his schooling. Ultimately, he is made redundant at the factory, he's laid off. With his severance package, he buys himself a brand spanking new Commodore Amiga 1000. Very expensive, but his severance was a few thousand pounds, so he was able to swing it. As soon as David Jones got that Amiga, he was instantly hooked on that machine as the wave of the future. The Spectrum was no longer good enough for him. He had actually been working with Russell Kay on creating a Spectrum game 
And he basically just stopped working on that and left it for Kay to finish as he experimented with his Amiga, which none of his poorer and in some cases younger friends at the computer club could afford to have themselves. Out of all of this, he ends up in the late 80s deciding to form a company around him and his Amiga and his buddies, which he initially calls Acme Software. The plan is to use this great, wonderful Amiga machine to really bring the arcade experience that he was so fond of. As I said, these shooting games like Galaga and Salamander and the like to life in the home. Obviously, there had been arcade conversions, even on the lowly ZX80 and ZX81, even before the Spectrum. But the Amiga was the first time that you had something that was fast and powerful and colorful enough that you could start to approximate some of those thrills of those shooting games in the home. And that's very much what David Jones wanted to do. He and his friends are working on a game, and the uh, finished product ends up being a shooter called Menace. It's a decent shooter on that system. Colorful, fast, plays all right. They look for a publisher. Originally, they thought they would go with Hewson, which was one of the bigger of the kind of mid-range British publishers. I mean, very few of the British publishers were big at this time. We've talked about this scene a little bit before, but Hewson was one of the bigger ones. Hewson wanted to turn it into essentially the 16-bit port of one of their 8-bit hits called Zynaps, which was inspired by many of the same shooters that David Jones himself is inspired by. He really wasn't interested in that because there wouldn't be as much money in it if they just turned it into a port or an adaptation of somebody else's game. They end up turning that down, and they end up going with Psygnosis, which we've talked about a few times, most particularly in the context of the Sony PlayStation, because they would be bought by Sony in the early 90s and be a major part of kind of the PlayStation launch. This is when they were still independent. This was pre-Sony. They were a company that was heavily invested in audiovisual experiences, cutting-edge technology, and certainly the Commodore Amiga. They were a good fit. So that's where Dave ends up going with the game. Turns out Acme is already in use by another company, a design firm. Obviously, Acme is a popular name because of the old Roadrunner cartoons and all of that, so it's not too surprising that the name was already taken. I'm surprised they even got anything named Acme, to be honest. (laughs) Right. They pivot, and when the company is officially established in 1989, they take the name DMA, which is direct memory access. It comes from the ability of the Amiga to do DMA interrupts technical term, but basically it means that a process within a program can come in and tell the processor, hey, this needs to happen right now. Stop what you're doing and do this instead. It's a way to push through processes and allow for faster, more powerful gameplay elements, essentially. I mean, I'm I'm oversimplifying, but direct memory access is a big deal in hardware design, and it was a big deal in the Amiga over something like the ZX Spectrum. Dave Jones thought that was cool, so they were like, we'll call ourselves DMA Design. Of course, as the company became bigger, it became inevitable that they would be asked questions about what DMA actually means, because they wrote it in all caps like it was an acronym, because it is an acronym for direct memory access, but they weren't really interested in it meaning anything in particular, and so they would make up silly things for the press, and more often than not, they would say it means doesn't mean anything. 
DMA design based on direct memory access on the Commodore Amiga. Doesn't mean any design. <laughs> Doesn't mean anything, right. This is not a history of DMA. We need to get them established because we need to see where this whole thing comes from, but we won't go super in-depth on the history of the company. But they do menace. It does fine. They do another shooter game. It also does fine. Then they have their massive, big, incredible worldwide hit, Lemmings. I like Lemmings. I remember playing that a lot. Yes, indeed. This game is many orders of magnitude more popular than anything they had done. Their early games sold in the tens of thousands of units. They were a small company in a relatively small market on a platform that had a relatively small install base in that market. Doing tens of thousands of units was pretty good. Lemmings, of course, hit the mainstream, was ported all over the place, including the console, and did two million units in its original incarnation as they made expansion discs and sequels and ports and everything else. Perhaps as many as 15 million units of the various products in the Lemmings line were sold. This was a game-changer for the company. Of course, it's pretty far away from Grand Theft Auto. They went from these hardcore shooting games based on their arcade experience to this puzzle game. Well, to be fair, in Lemmings, you can plot to save your Lemmings <laughs> or plot to kill them horribly in very entertaining ways. You can. And I was just about to say, you do see some of the same humor of the company in Lemmings. Certainly, the Grand Theft Auto series, going all the way back to the first one, has walked a line between this serious, real-world, gritty aesthetic and this kind of satirical, cynical send-up of perceptions of America and perceptions of the American dream and perceptions of crime and violence and sex and American society. It's kind of a funhouse mirror of American society, but at the same time is also trying to be something serious. Now, I would say the early Grand Theft Auto games, the overhead view ones, weren't doing that serious side of it, really. That's something that comes in later when the Hauser brothers get involved. But that humor and that send-up and that ghoulish satire, I mean, you can see some of that in Lemmings, as you say. After Lemmings, Cygnosis gets bought by Sony. And DMA is in need of a publisher now because they're not really coming along for that whole Sony thing yet. They actually end up working with Nintendo because Lemmings really put them on the map and it's the kind of game that Nintendo likes. It's family friendly, it's cartoony, it's got depth of gameplay, it's got charm. It's something that certainly appeals to to kind of the Nintendo mindset, and so they end up working with Nintendo on a game called Uniracers, which is released as Unirally in some territories, for the Super Nintendo. It does all right. It's, you know, it wasn't like a massive hit or anything, and they did have to take it off the market after Pixar actually sued them because they said the unicycles looked exactly like a unicycle that appeared in one of their early shorts. I mean, it really did look the same, so, <laughs> I mean, they, they won their case. It was a modest success, but Nintendo was very impressed. So Nintendo made DMA part of its dream team for the N64. We've talked about this concept a little bit, but Nintendo decided on that system that 
as a way of reasserting control over the third-party market, something that had been eroded over the course of the 16-bit era as Sega had gained more ground and they couldn't coerce publishers as much to stay exclusive to their system. They decided that in this next generation, the way they would keep things kind of tightly interwoven is that they would only grant early access to the N64 platform to select companies that they felt comfortable working with and which would agree to make their initial games for the N64 exclusive to that platform. They saw the N64 as a great leap forward over uh, competing systems from Sega and Sony, which it was in some ways and not in other ways, as is often the case with competing hardware. They wanted games that would specifically showcase the strengths of that system, and they wanted those games not appearing on anyone else's console. DMA Design, because of the success of Lemmings and because of the fruitful collaboration on uh, Uniracers, was made a member of this Dream Team, and they were going to create a launch title for the N64. They even called David Jones a Spielberg of video games. (laughs) which is probably laying it on a bit thick, but this just kind of indicates where the company kind of was after the success of Lemmings. They were seen as this up-and-coming, creative, whimsical company. They have this big N64 launch title that they're working on, which eventually does get released, Body Harvest, but is neither a launch title nor, at the end of the day, published by Nintendo. At the same time, they're also working on this massive 3D open-world game called Space Station Silicon Valley, which is planned to be their other big tentpole. These are the projects in the mid-90s that DMA Design is working on that's going to take them to the next level. Meanwhile, a very small team of individuals is toiling away in near obscurity within the company on a third title that nobody really expects to be much of anything, especially in comparison to these other two games, but is kind of chugging along in the background. That is a game called Race and Chase. The origins of Race and Chase are a little murky. Some of the participants have talked about it, but it's been not in very much detail. What we do know is this. Dave Jones was very interested in the creation of complex systems within a computer program, within a game world. Certainly, Lemmings shows some of that interest. On its surface, it's uh, fairly simple, and the interface is fairly simple, but there's a lot of depth to the puzzle solving there with all the different special lemmings and what they can do, and then the level design that forces you to use particular special abilities and, and all of that stuff. He was very interested in the idea of creating a living, breathing, working city where you have people going around and traffic patterns and train schedules and traffic lights that work and all of this kind of stuff kind of working together. Almost like a more advanced version of SimCity. In a way, though, at this point, we're not really talking about where the gameplay is going. We're talking about just having a backdrop of some kind that is interesting and complex in this way. 
that's definitely one origin of Race and Chase. Then there's Mike Daly, who we talked about, one of the first employees of Psygnosis who knew Dave Jones from when uh, Mike was a 14-year-old kid showing up at this computer club for the first time, who is stuck with Psygnosis. He was a big part of what happened with Lemmings and all of that stuff. Mike Daly was fooling around with a prototype of a city engine. They did a few different things with it. At one point, they apparently put dinosaurs in it, just kind of for fun to see how that worked. Apparently, the original exec for the game was still well into development. Maybe even at launch was Dino.exe, because there had been this dinosaur game origin to it. That's a little obscured by the historical record, whether the dinosaur thing was completely separate, like in a prehistoric world, or if they had just had dinosaurs running around in the city. I've seen it said both ways. They kind of did that. Then Mike Daly was working with this city engine, which had a isometric view, a rotatable 3D isometric view, not polygonal graphics, but, you know, that faux 3D that isometric can do. He was playing around with kind of this game focusing on direct conflict between rival gangs on foot, not in cars. The view that he was using, this isometric view, was not well suited to fast driving in cars and whatnot because, of course, a lot of the roads and whatnot would be obscured in an isometric view. He was kind of fooling around with that, and it wasn't going very well from a technological perspective. Then Bullfrog did Syndicate Wars, and Syndicate Wars was very similar to this idea that he was toying around with. I'm sure that Daly himself was probably inspired in part by Syndicate, the forerunner to Syndicate Wars, which also had the isometric and all of that going on. So, I mean, it's, it's not a surprise. Daly had to kind of scrap that. Then he started down a different path. He saw the Sega game Clockwork Knight, which was a side-scrolling platformer on the Saturn. But... It used some of the 3D capability of the Saturn to do kind of a perspective to the platforms and give them this kind of three-dimensional look and feel, even though it was a traditional 2D side-scrolling game. Almost like Donkey Kong in a way. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that it looks anywhere near as sharp as Donkey Kong Country in some ways, but it's kind of doing a similar idea that Donkey Kong Country was, which is giving this fuller, more three-dimensional look to a 2D space. So yes, in that sense, definitely similar. And of course, we'll put that in the show notes. So he was fiddling around with this prototype now. And then there was another person at the company who had been Interested for a while in doing some kind of top-down racing game, very influenced by games like Super Sprint in the arcade and Micro Machines, which was on various 8- and 16-bit platforms, Nintendo and Sega platforms, done by Codemasters that was known for its smooth and uh, nice-to-control top-down kind of racing action. Daly had not been interested in this at first, but... After he was fiddling around with this new engine, he thought to himself, well, I'm working on the side-scrolling thing, but if I add a floor to it, essentially, 
then instead of it feeling like platforms, you're really creating the effect of a top-down kind of view. So instead of those pieces that are standing out, those three-dimensional platform-like pieces being the playfield, those then can be the buildings and the signs and all of that other stuff. And then you have that as a top-down view instead of a side view. He started getting kind of interested in this, and so he started rejiggering to do this instead. And so he brings that to Dave Jones. Dave Jones is impressed because he does like this idea of creating this fully realized system of these cities, and this kind of pseudo-3D top-down engine would allow them to create very interesting cityscapes with a lot of depth. If you zoom out and do a nice overhead view... You can kind of get this whole city thing going, and you could really populate it and make it feel alive and have all of these systems interacting under the hood of this relatively simple graphical interface. They decided that they would go with that. Kind of the logical place to go in terms of putting a game on top of this was some kind of cops and robbers kind of thing. And so that's where the idea of Race and Chase was born. Race and Chase was pitched to a relatively new player in the video game space by the name of BMG Interactive. We've talked about this many times before, but we are right now in the heart of the Sillywood period. Multimedia is big. Multimedia is going to take over the world. Interactivity is the new entertainment. and the traditional media companies are feeling like they need to get a piece of this action because interactive entertainment is the future and because they're already good at working with entertainment content, they can definitely just swoop in and take over this field. No problem. BMG was one of these companies. BMG Entertainment, which is where BMG Interactive was housed, was one arm of the Bertelsmann Group, the massive German conglomerate that was involved in all forms of media. They were a major record label in particular. They're no longer around, but they were one of the majors at the time. So they were big in music especially, but they had their hands in other pies as well. They established an interactive division to get in on this. They headquartered it in San Francisco, but they also established offices in New York and in London. And they were very interested in the European market because, of course, Bertelsmann is a German company. Unlike many of the other big media companies that got in at this time, like Viacom and MGM and Fox and all of these movie studios and television production companies and record companies, etc., they also had a very big interest in tapping into what was going on in Europe in addition to the United States, because, of course, they're based in Europe. So they had an office in London, B&G Entertainment International, being the subsidiary. It's a group of companies, so it gets complicated. Had a division of BMG Interactive in London run by a bloke by the name of Gary Dale. They were sourcing the British market for content. They were interested in games. They were also interested in multimedia, the educational stuff, all the things that were exciting people at the time. They did a Louvre product, for instance, the big art museum in France, an interactive multimedia Louvre tour in addition to games. They were looking at everything. Race and Chase was pitched to BMG, and BMG decided to take it on and run with it. Race and Chase, very different at first from what actually came out. One of the early design documents 
the design document for the game is actually online. I think it was Mike Daly who posted it years ago so that people could see it. So we actually have that document available for viewing. Version 1.05 of the game design document from March 22nd, 1995. It's called Race and Chase because those are really the concepts. They decided that the game would take place in three cities, and there would be missions in these cities. Players would take on missions at this point in a fairly linear fashion. There would be multiple types of games. You could do what they called the Cannonball Run, which was a straight just race across the city, drive from point A to point B. Then there was a Demolition Derby cause damage to cars as you go. And then there were the cops and robbers elements, where you could be the bank robber, or you could be the police car that would stop the bank robber from escaping. At this point, it didn't have any of this over-the-top stuff that would come later. It was very first and foremost a simulator of a city, on top of which there were some racing elements and there were some cops and robbers elements where you might be the cop, you might be the robber. It was barely more than a tech demo. It was buggy as all get out. With all of these complicated systems going, it was hard to get this thing to work together. Mike Daly was on it. The lead programmer was a fellow by the name of uh, Keith Hamilton. They put three designers on the project and gave each of them a city and basically said, take some graph paper and design a city. At BMG, it was being overseen by a gentleman by the name of Gary Penn, who had been an expert game player in his youth, who parlayed that into a career in game journalism in the United Kingdom, and then moved on from there into producing, first as an independent producer for Konami, and uh, then moving in-house with BMG Interactive. The game at this point was not fun. You were kind of constrained, especially as the cop, to these roads to driving around the city. There were pedestrians. It was a living city, but you know you couldn't run over the pedestrians. If you were a cop, you couldn't mount the sidewalk and run over pedestrians as you tried to chase down the robber. We're not in Death Race 2000 here. That's right. I mean, you're the good guys. That kind of thing just isn't supposed to happen. There was a lot of emphasis on just the way everything worked. Like, at first, to get in a car... You had to press a button to open the door, get in the car, press a button to close the door after you got in the car, and that's how you entered a vehicle. So more or less three button presses to take control of a car. Right. You were, at least to a degree, supposed to stay in the bounds of driving rules. I mean, presumably, and obviously there was the demolition derby mode where you're damaging other cars, and I'm sure the robber didn't have to, like, obey the traffic laws or anything. But there was, you know, an emphasis on... Oh, you know, there's a traffic light. Stop at the traffic light. You know, that kind of thing. Not necessarily baked into the gameplay in the sense you'd be penalized if you didn't. But there was the idea that it was a simulator first and a game second, and it was crashing all the time. It was a disaster. And then finally they decided, well, look, the game's a lot more fun if you can do things like mount the curve, ignore the rules, drive around with a little more abandon and not be so focused on the nuts and bolts of all of this. We need to ditch the cops. Playing the cops, I mean, obviously. We can still have them as antagonists. <laughs> exactly. Let's just have the player be the robber. Let's just have the player be the bad guy. Remember, at this period of time in, in video game history, this is a pretty big step. 
I wouldn't go as far as to say there's never been a game where you played the bad guy before, because sure, there have been some, but in video games, you play the hero, even in some of the more controversial, more quote-unquote adult games that are starting to come out in this period, like Doom, you're still the good guy. You're blowing away the bad guys. You're not playing the bad guy. That's not how games work. You rescue the princess. You find the treasure. You defeat the evil demons from hell. You don't rob banks and then take off with the cash. And if you happen to run over pedestrians along the way, whoopsie, sorry about that. That's not video games. Not in 1995. This was in some ways a pretty bold step, but it was still a problematic game. It was still having issues. It was still crashing all the time. As they continued working on it, they took more and more inspiration from Elite. There were people all around this product that were very big fans of Elite, and we've talked about Elite. We even did an episode on Elite. Elite was one of the first games, at least one of the first very popular games, that provided the concept of an open world, where instead of get to the end of the level, get the high score, do this objective, do that objective. You are just plopped in the middle of this enormous universe and can basically take on any task that you want within the constraints of the game world. Ferrying cargo, hunting pirates, turning pirates yourself, mining for resources. It still had the goal, the vague goal at the end of becoming the elite. There was still something attainable at the end, but how you obtained that goal was not dictated to you. No one told you where to go. No one told you what you had to do. You were just presented options. Keith Hamilton, who was the project lead on Grand Theft Auto, was a big fan of Elite. Gary Penn, who was the producer at BMG, was a big fan of Elite. Other people on the team were also big fans of Elite. This was a seminal game in Britain especially, and of course, all of these individuals involved are British. They started pushing more aggressively into this open-world direction. They had missions that you selected on a mission tree. Initially, they were very linear. You know, you do this mission, you do this mission, and it's progressive. Like, you start doing really boring things, relatively speaking, like delivering pizza when you're, like, doing tutorials, essentially, and learning how to drive and learning how the city works, and then moving on to more complex tasks. This is at the point where we've obviously abandoned the original race and chase idea of these four gameplay modes and are now doing your playing a bad guy zooming around the city game. They decide, well, instead of having this mission tree... Why don't we put these phones in the game, these phone booths, and you go to a phone and you pick up a mission there instead, make it more immersive within the game. Then Gary Foreman, who was the technical director at BMG, basically said, well, if we've got these phones in the game world and you can walk up and get a mission, why even keep a mission order? Why have any order to the missions at all? A player can walk up to a phone when they want to do a mission, and they can get that mission from that phone at any time. True kind of open world, in a sense. Drive anywhere, take on any mission in any order, or just drive around town, even. It doesn't matter. We're moving towards something very open world, and something that is, like I said, very heavily inspired by Elite. Which is why... Elite was one of our top 20 most influential games, as was, I believe, Grand Theft Auto 3. These games were both huge in pushing forward this idea that games don't have to be linear, games don't have to have set objectives, and even when there are objectives within a game, 
there's still room for discovery and emergent gameplay and creating your own narrative on top of what's going on. The three designers that I talked about create these three cities that are based on three classic conceptions of the United States in this time period. Liberty City, which is based on New York. Vice City, which is based on Miami. And San Andreas, which is based on San Francisco. Those names sound suspiciously familiar. (laughs) Don't they, though? (laughs) Don't they indeed? Yep, they're all there in the first game that they make. Liberty City, Vice City, and San Andreas. Even at this early stage, they're kind of presenting these overdone, overwrought, satirical ideas of what these American cities are. I mean, these are British individuals that have never been to America, many of them. Certainly don't go to America as part of researching this. Uh, They're a small company. This is before the time when research trips for making games like this became kind of de rigueur. And, you know, you would go with your digital cameras and just photograph everything in sight in the place that you're modeling so that you have something as a base for your textures. Of course, this was very early in the days of the Internet, too. So it's not like you could just troll Flickr accounts and Instagrams to get good images of things either. They did most of their research in libraries. So it's kind of this America as seen through the eyes of people that haven't been there, but who have absorbed American culture, with, again, on top of that, the idea that we want to make it kind of larger than life and kind of provide the satirical edge to it. So that's kind of what's going on in the design of these areas. As the game becomes more and more aggressively nonlinear, though, Dave Jones is worried that it's going to lose too much focus. He feels there needs to be something going on there that anchors the player within the world, some kind of objective. I mean, even Elite had the objective to become the Elite, despite its aggressive open-worldness. When presented with this quandary, Dave Jones actually turned to pinball as his solution. He decided that the goal could be the accumulation of points, just like in pinball. And just like in pinball, you could get different amounts of points for doing different things in the game, not just completing missions. So just like your ball racing around and hitting various bumpers and targets gives you point, your car racing around and hitting various targets, like other cars and people, could give you points. This is when the game really dials up to 11, because they already kind of had the idea that, okay, you're a robber, you're going to mount the curve, and people are going to probably get hurt. But now they're saying going after the people is actually going to be part of the fun. It's going to be part of the design. It's going to be part of what gets you the score you need to quote-unquote beat the game. So at that point, it just starts becoming wilder and wilder, becoming more outlandish, more violent, more Grand Theft Auto. Which, of course, is eventually what they decide to change the name to because Race and Chase no longer fits within the context of this pretty crazy game they've made. There's one other thing that ends up being a happy accident that really kind of defines the gameplay of the first Grand Theft Auto. I told you how the game was very buggy, and it was very buggy for a long time. It crashed and crashed and crashed for a very long time. Well, at one point, the pathing for the cop cars got screwed up. Because you see, they had the cops in the game. But the idea was that the cops would chase you and be trying to pull you over. If the cops caught up to you, they'd pull you over and you'd be arrested or whatever. Well, in one build of the game, the pathing 
for the cop cars got messed up. So instead of the cop cars aiming for a spot right behind you, the cop cars were aiming for a spot right in the middle of you. Totally by accident. And so what this meant is the cops suddenly went crazy and were trying to ram you over and over again instead of trying to pull you over. When they saw that, they were like, oh my gosh, yes, now this is fun. Suddenly, a game that was still kind of staid and boring and predictable became this madcap you against these crazy kamikaze cops that are trying to run you right off the road. And so they tweaked it, of course, because they didn't just leave it as it was with the bug. They tweaked it to be more as part of the design, but they made it so now the cops are trying to run you down. That kind of created the action element to the whole thing that finally made it interesting. That really made the game. Suddenly, this thing was a whole lot of fun. So you took one part elite for the open world, aggressive, nonlinear nature of it. You took one part micro machines and super sprint for kind of the feel of the driving. You took one part Clockwork Knight, of all things, for the inspiration for the creation of the engine and the way that you would use these pseudo-3D objects to give depth to this two-dimensional game world. Then you throw in some happy accidents, like the cops going crazy. On top of this all have Dave Jones's vague idea that, hey, wouldn't it be great if we kind of modeled all the workings of a city in a game? And you get Grand Theft Auto. Even after it became a fun game, there was a very real chance that it was never going to see the light of day. Because they are working on this game in 1995 and in 1996. They're working on it for BMG Interactive, which, like I said, is a company that wants to become a big player in the new multimedia revolution. They want to muscle their way in and make a splash. This is the era of Ridge Racer and Daytona with their beautiful, for the time, texture-mapped 3D polygonal cars on these great racetracks. This is the time when Lara Croft comes along in Tomb Raider and wows everybody with these 3D environments she's navigating in and these 3D uh, gigantic things in the middle of her chest that are wowing the young male players in another way. This is the time of Super Mario 64, And these little sandboxes where you can explore these full-dimensional spaces. BMG is working on this top-down driving game with, even for the time, pretty primitive two-dimensional graphics. There is a degree of 3D there because you do have the camera overhead that zooms in and out. And you can sort of see a little bit of wiggle with the 3D from the perspective. It's there, but it's almost like... PlayStation 1 lock perspective almost, you can't really look around in a 3D space. Like you said earlier, a 2D space that is rendered on a 3D engine. Exactly. BMG was like, look at Ridge Racer, look at Tomb Raider. That's the future. Why are we messing around with this sprite-based stuff? Now, this was kind of the brass of BMG Entertainment back in the United States. This was not Gary Dale and his team on the ground in BMG Active International in London. They loved it. Gary Penn and others fought for the game and made sure that BMG didn't cancel it, but it did almost get canceled a few times. In the end, BMG finally decided to stick with it. And not only did they decide to stick with it, they gave it the final piece that would make Grand Theft Auto Grand Theft Auto. They gave it the controversy. 
The controversy. That's right. I thought we just have all this controversy going on now. You mean they had controversy going on in the past? <laughs> well, yes. And the reason they had controversy is because they made it themselves. Remember, BMG was in the record business. BMG was the parent company of Arista Records. They had had punk artists. They had had rock stars that were unruly and wild and scandalous. They knew that brand was just as important to selling a game as content. Brand, image, attitude were just as important to selling a piece of content, whether that be a record or, in this case, a video game as the game itself, and they knew that courting controversy with the right kind of act, like a punk rock group, could be very, very fruitful. And they saw in Grand Theft Auto something that they knew could court controversy, because you are playing a bad guy. You are running down people for points. It's relatively tame by a lot of standards, even compared to something like Doom, it's pretty tame, quite frankly. But as I said, at least in Doom, you are the heroic colonial marine holding back the demons of hell. There's something almost worse about it, even if the violence is pretty ridiculous and cartoony, when you are the bad guy and being glorified for being the bad guys. All it takes is the right homespun group to go... Oh, video games are evil and need to be banned because look at Grand Theft Auto. You're stealing cars. We're contributing to the delinquency of minors. They're learning how to steal cars, how to evade cops, to have a complete disregard for human life. And they're going to take all of the rocket launchers and destroy all of the town. And we can't have that. Exactly. BMG knew that they could use this in their favor. Dale, the head of BMG Interactive International in London, called up a gentleman by the name of Max Clifford. Max Clifford was an English publicist, very controversial himself, especially in his later years. He is dead now. He died in 2017. But in his later years, he was accused of sexual indiscretions with teenage girls. I say accused, he was actually convicted. <laughs> he was found to have had sexual relations with underage girls and was sentenced to eight years in prison. He actually died in prison. A controversial guy himself, but he was a PR guy who handled a lot of big names in the UK. I mean, Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, people like that at Chris Hutchins' PR agency. He became known as somebody who was brilliant at generating fake controversy in order to spur notoriety and popularity and sales. The most famous stunt that he was involved in was when he planted a fake news story in The Sun, which is basically a tabloid newspaper in the United Kingdom, stating that Freddie Starr ate my hamster. Freddie Starr was an English comedian, actor, and uh, rock and roll singer. Star made up this story that he came home after a performance at a nightclub in the early hours one morning, told his girlfriend to make him a sandwich, and when she refused, he went into the kitchen and put her pet hamster between two slices of bread and ate it. Then the headline was, Freddie Star Ate My Hamster. It was a complete fabrication. But 
it was one of these wild and crazy kind of rock and roll things. And, you know, people would be like, oh, that's so rock and roll. You know, like Ozzy Osbourne biting the head off a bat on stage, kind of rock and roll. It created a lot of notoriety and it became, that's that's a cultural touchstone amongst British people of a certain age. Remember that headline. It was a big deal. There was even a ZX Spectrum game called Rockstar Ate My Hamster that was named after that headline. This was huge, huge, huge in the United Kingdom. And Max Clifford is the one that was behind that. He was behind a lot of things like that. He knew how to generate a controversy and use that controversy to drive sales. So Dale calls up Max Clifford and asks him to do this Grand Theft Auto promotion. When Clifford hears about this, he says, great, yes, let's do this. The first rule here is don't back away from anything. Don't back away from the violence in your game. Don't back away from the fact that you're a robber. Don't back away from the fact that you're doing all of these terrible things. Embrace that. Make sure that you keep the content such that it will not be refused classification, which is the way games were rated in the United Kingdom. It's, it's called getting classification. Make sure that your game is not actually banned. Make sure there's nothing so terrible in there that it's off store shelves. Dance right up to that line. But don't hide from the controversy. Be loud and proud about it. And even though parents will be horrified and older people will be horrified, the kids that you want buying this game are going to eat this up. Yes, embrace the dark side of the video game. Take control of being a robber. Destroy innocent lives and take over all the cars. Embrace (laughs) the dark side, young one. Right. Pretty much. And then Clifford said, and while you do that, I'm going to start planting notices about this game with the right people so that it starts getting talked about in the right circles so that you get the controversy you need to make this game big. So I'm presuming he puts articles in Mother's Tea Weekly. (laughs) Oh, no, no. Far better than just putting articles someplace. The news coverage will come all on its own. He starts planting stories about this with the right people in certain political circles within the United Kingdom. Conversations start being had in these circles until finally, on May 20th, 1997, before the game has even been released at this point. Grand Theft Auto launches in November 1997. On May 20th, 1997, Lord Campbell of Croy a very prominent member of parliament in the House of Lords, who was also a member of the uh, Consumer Affairs Group within parliament, which kind of kept an eye on what was going on in the consumer marketplace, gave a speech about the scandalous new computer game, Grand Theft Auto. He explained to the House of Lords that there was hit and runs, there was joyriding, there were police chases and that children would be able to buy this game when it was released. There'll even be cats and dogs living together. Mass hysteria. (laughs) Pandemonium. Absolutely. So, of course, you know, this is being talked about in Parliament. I mean, the House of Lords doesn't have any power to do anything, but the House of Lords deliberates. The government went on the record saying that, yes, this is perhaps concerning. So, of course, the newspaper article started, you know, there's this talk about this horrible game the children will be able to buy in the Houses of Parliament, and so the press starts picking up on all of this as well. There's an attempt to see whether it should be refused classification by the BBFC. 
British Film Council, which rated movies and games as well. It caused this big kind of row, and then Clifford just kept stoking it. They filmed a promotional video just using DMA staff, where they're racing around in a car. One of the members of the DMA team actually ended up, just while driving home or whatever one day, having a minor, minor fender bender with a tree, like super, super minor fender bender. But Clifford took that incident and said, an employee of the game that makes Grand Theft Auto had his license taken away after he smashed his car into a tree at high speed, totally destroying it. You know, they just, <laughs> which, which wasn't true. <laughs> But they just built up this image around the game so that when it was finally released in November, everybody already knew what it was in the United Kingdom. And it did fine. It did fine. Only fine. Yeah. It kind of became a cult hit. It became an underground hit. Some people really liked it. Other people were definitely put off by the graphics. It didn't have great controls. It was fine. We find it to be an acceptable solution to our murder needs. However, we will not be playing this after about six months. It was selling about 10,000 copies a week. It sold at least half a million copies. That's not bad. That's great for a little uh, computer game like this, because it, it wasn't on the consoles at this point. But it didn't do great, because it was seen as primitive. And it did seem to be out of step with the big releases at the time. When it came time to bring it to the States, they had trouble coming up with a company that would release it in the States. The controversy preceded it. People were aware of it, and there was a buzz building amongst certain gaming communities. There had been websites, particularly one at the University of Missouri, run by students that were following the game and, and following the controversy and were kind of eagerly anticipating it, but it was a still pretty small portion of things. BMG was in the process of getting out of the video game business. They didn't want to be in it anymore. They had spent a lot of money. They had not had a lot of success. It turned out that breaking into this market when you have no experience with interactive entertainment isn't as easy as it looks. BMG didn't want to keep losing money to build market share. They were done with it. It wasn't their core area. It turned out that the multimedia revolution wasn't the real revolution. It was going to be the internet revolution. We are now moving into the first stages of what would become the dot-com bubble. The multimedia revolution was now passe. Media companies were chasing the internet now. They didn't want to chase video games anymore. So BMG decided to get out. BMG released it in the United Kingdom, but there wasn't a publisher for it in the United States. They end up releasing it on PC in the United States in 1998 through a really tiny company in Connecticut called ASC Games, with the ASC standing for American Softworks Corporation. I know almost nothing about this company. They were founded in 1990, originally in Stamford, Connecticut, and they moved uh, to another town in Connecticut. They released a very, very small number of games on 16-bit console platforms, Super NES Genesis. They released a handful of computer games. They tried to move into the niche of driving games, some racing games, and some hunting games, kind of these budget, mass-market appeal kind of things. I don't know if they picked up Grand Theft Auto because since they were also looking at some of the driving stuff, they thought, well, maybe that kind of fits in. But this tiny company, ASC, got it because nobody else wanted it. 
ASC released it in the U.S. They sold a little over 100,000 copies in uh, about two years on PC. They were completely unprepared for the controversy. They were kind of overwhelmed trying to deal with some of the controversy that followed. I mean, the controversy around Grand Theft Auto was now the self-perpetuating machine. It had been entirely manufactured. There had been no controversy around Grand Theft Auto until BMG decided to create a controversy around Grand Theft Auto. Once that controversy was there, it couldn't be controlled anymore. It had taken on a life of its own. Then, of course, you had the series of school shootings in the United States, starting with Columbine. That kind of fed into this whole thing. Games were under greater scrutiny. Grand Theft Auto was already had this built-in controversy. People were kind of focusing on that. I mean, it wasn't in the limelight in the same way it would be years later because it was a niche game. In fact, it's so funny to see how it was dismissed by many publications. There were newspapers and whatnot that reviewed it and took a look at it and thought, oh, yeah, this is kind of horrible. You're playing the bad guys. But then at the end of the day, they were like, but... It's also very primitive. The graphics are very primitive. The gameplays, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's going to go away anyway. I found one review from 1998 where basically at the end of the review, the person said, parents and anyone older than 25 might find Grand Theft instantly offensive, but they can relax. The game's marketing bark is worse than the video's bite on this one. What he was saying is, yeah, it's in bad taste. Yeah, you're going to be offended by the fact that you're playing a robber and mowing down pedestrians, but at the end of the day, it's not that good a game. It's just going to fade away. Nobody's going to play it. Don't give it attention, and the game's not going to be of consequence. Exactly. Except what they failed to take into account is that the game had one incredibly huge champion who had been involved with the game at BMG Interactive as the head of product development for BMG Interactive International in the United Kingdom, who had been involved in shepherding it through, and who was still utterly convinced that the game was amazing and could continue to change the world. And that individual was Sam Hauser. Sam Hauser had an interesting and somewhat privileged childhood. He was born in 1971. His father ran music clubs. He was a solicitor, Walter Hauser, but he was also involved in music clubs and the jazz scene in London. His mother was actress Geraldine Moffat, very famous as a sex symbol from the movie Get Carter, starring Michael Caine, a crime film from 1971. He grew up in a kind of privileged state in London, and he became, perhaps in part because of his actress mother, he became obsessed with crime films. There was kind of a boom in the 1970s that really ties into Grand Theft Auto. This was the new wave of cinema. This was when cinema was going from more fantastical and lighter fare to grittier, more realistic fare. You had classic crime movies like Get Carter and The French Connection and The Getaway and The Wild Bunch, which was a Western, but it was still focused kind of on criminals, that were focused more on showing the gritty reality of the streets, crime, and how tough it is out in the world, and that kind of thing. A non-romanticized version of it. Exactly, a non-romanticized version of all of this. Hauser, as a young boy, ate this stuff up. He loved it. One time when he was asked what he wanted to be when he grew up, he said he wanted to be a bank robber. 
he became obsessed with gangs and gang movies as well. Now, he wasn't in a gang, but I mean, he was obsessed with gang movies, movies like The Warriors that had these kind of distinctive gangs with their own costumes and paraphernalia and all of this. He just loved the aesthetic of that world. He also, in the 80s, became, uh, you know, when he was still a, a teenager, became enamored with Def Jam Records and Rick Rubin. Def Jam was one of the pioneers in bringing hip-hop into the mainstream. Coming out of New York, it was co-founded by Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons. Technically, Rubin founded it himself out of his dorm room, and Russell Simmons joined soon after, but they basically shaped it together. They were a big part of the emerging hip-hop scene in the 80s on both the kind of black and white side of the equation. Rubin was white, Jewish guy, Simmons was black, and they kind of bridged that divide. So they were responsible in large part for LL Cool J coming to prominence, also the Beastie Boys coming to prominence, and other groups as well. Then even moved on from hip-hop to even produce heavy metal. They worked with Slayer on Reign of Blood, which was one of the classic thrash releases. Even moving into the 90s, they were working with influential groups like Public Enemy. They were really shaping this culture. And one thing about Def Jam Records, too, is it was very street in the way that it operated in terms of guerrilla marketing and doing things at ground level to build up interest and to build up promotion. Do-it-yourself, guerrilla marketing, you know, slapping stickers on traffic poles, marketing, and that kind of thing. Just really underground, really edgy. And Sam Hauser loved this. So he loved these gritty crime movies. He loved Def Jam and kind of this guerrilla, do-it-yourself marketing approach. He loved the idea of New York and America and the culture and being hip in American culture. And he loved video games. He was introduced to video games in the early 80s when his family was on holiday in Brighton. We've talked before how going on holiday to the coast is a big part of British culture. All of those coastal towns would have their seaside arcades with all the latest arcade games, and that was where a lot of people were exposed to arcade games. There were arcade games elsewhere you could find them, and particularly London had some big arcades. For a lot of British children of a certain age, going to the coast and playing arcade video games are kind of activities that went hand in hand. He loved all those games of the early 80s. He was particularly fond of Mr. Do, of all things. Really, really felt that video games were a part of the future. He ended up working for BMG. He got his first job as an intern in the mailroom in 1990 as a teenager because he and his father were at lunch with an executive one day. He basically was like, why are all you record executives so old? Why is everyone so old? You got to be hip with the young kids. You need young people. He was being brash and arrogant in a way a self-assured, cocky teenager only can be. And the guy was basically like, your son's crazy, but he's got some good ideas. So he started as an intern in the mailroom. Then as he was going to college, the University of London, he continued as an intern in the video entertainment department, which is, was basically doing things like music videos. He directed some music videos there. When BMG Interactive was formed, he basically begged to be a part of that operation. 
because he loved video games and he really believed that they were the future as an interactive, expressive medium. And there was no way that BMG was going to get involved in that without him coming along. He joined BMG Interactive pretty much at its inception, eventually became the head of product development there. He was also a big fan of Elite, just like Gary Penn, just like Keith Hamilton, just like all of these people. He was drawn in by the freedom present in Grand Theft Auto. He was drawn in by the crime elements, by the gang elements. This was all great stuff to him. He was a big champion of it all throughout development, and he was a big part of the reason why BMG embraced the game. Well, as I said, BMG decided to get out of the video game business, which meant that Sam Hauser was going to be out of a job with BMG as was his brother, Dan, who was never into video games in the same way that Sam was, but was a writer, had a literature degree from Oxford, and did have some belief in video games as a medium, much like his brother. And so he came to BMG as well. And his first gig was writing trivia questions for You Don't Know Jack. I know that game. That one's fun. (laughs) Absolutely. And of course, the legacy of it, obviously, it's no longer BMG, but the legacy of it continues with the Jackboxes and all of that today. They were no longer going to have a place at BMG if they wanted to be involved in video games. So now the task was to get kind of the BMG operation sold to somebody that would be willing to take it on. The whole thing ends up getting sold in March 1998 to a tiny little upstart publisher called Take-Two Interactive. Well, they sound somewhat familiar. Take-Two was founded by a young man in his early 20s by the name of Ryan Brandt. Just as Sam Hauser's parents in Britain were kind of big in this kind of entertainment scene and were fairly well off, Ryan Brandt was the heir of Peter Brandt, a very successful magazine publisher. Peter Brandt owned magazines such as Interview, which had been originally founded by Andy Warhol, and Art in America, kind of highbrow cultural magazines. Ryan Brandt graduated from the Wharton School of Business in 1992 and knew that he wanted to follow his father into media but knew that he did not want to go into print media because he felt that print media was dead. So in 1993, at the age of 21, he decides that he is going to found a video game company because he's one of these people that feels that interactive entertainment is the wave of the future as part of that whole same multimedia revolution, except in this case, instead of it being a media company getting involved, it's the scion of a family that's in old media and wants to make his mark and feels that he can make his mark in new media. So he establishes Take-Two, largely with an investment from his father. It's good having rich parents sometimes. He decides that the way he's going to make it big is, you know, the whole interactive movie thing has been going on. This is Sillywood, like we said. And he's founding the company in 1993, which is kind of the peak of this idea of Sillywood. So he decides what he'll do is to make his company stand out. He's going to do these interactive movies, but because he comes from money and because his father is well-connected in the entertainment industry through his magazine publishing business, he's going to get real stars to appear in his productions. They're going to be bigger and better productions. 
He does a game called Hell, a cyberpunk thriller starring Dennis Hopper, famous actor who's a friend of his father's. He gets other big names into these interactive movies and is able to generate press and interest off of the fact that he's able to bring in these stars. Now, the games themselves are junk. The company's not going much of anywhere, but it's a start. It's enough to get the company going public in 1997. So once they get public, he has some money to play around with, and he realizes that he's got to use this money to get bigger and better. He starts buying up distributors. He gets himself some console licenses, and now that he's got the licenses, he needs content, and so he looks at BMG Interactive. BMG's getting out, and so take two, and Ryan Brandt move in. He buys up BMG Interactive's assets, the rights to the games that they have, all of this great stuff, and he also gets the Hauser brothers and other people there, Jamie King, another intern that had followed Sam Hauser over to the interactive side, Gary Foreman, who I mentioned briefly before, who was the technical director at BMG Interactive. He gets this core of talent. Dan Hauser's there. He basically says to Sam Hauser, we need content. You're going to be the one that provides it, because Sam Hauser, I, I think he senses a kindred spirit there. He's another young, brash, well-connected guy that really believes in the future of interactive entertainment. So he basically tells Sam Hauser to come over to New York and become the head of worldwide product development for Take-Two, you know, move from London and establish himself in New York, which is like a dream come true for Sam Hauser, who has idolized New York ever since he visited for the first time when his father took him on a trip there at 18. I think Dan joins a little later, but he gets his brother to come along, he gets Jamie King to come along, and then he reaches out to another friend of his that works in artist relations at Arista Records named Terry Donovan. Terry Donovan had never been involved in video games before, but he told Terry, who was one of his best friends, come on, do this with me. So he gets all of these people and he relocates to New York. They open an office at 575 Broadway and get down to the business of trying to create a business for Take-Two. It just so happens that Grand Theft Auto, at some point in here, I don't know if it was still from the B&G days or not. I mean, they still had the British rights, of course, but, you know, they had not published it in the U.S. It just so happened that ASC decided against doing it on PlayStation. They were really scared off by the controversy, at least according to one article I read. I don't know if that was just the owner of the company after the fact being like, oh, yeah, we never wanted it anyway. I don't think so. I mean, they were really kind of taken aback by the controversy from what the founder of the company said in the article, because bringing it to the PlayStation would expose it to more kids than the PC version, because there was still this divide where PC gamers tended to be older than console game players. He didn't feel comfortable doing it on the PlayStation. So he turned down the opportunity to publish the port on PlayStation. So Take-Two swoops in and gets those PlayStation rights to Grand Theft Auto in the United States. They publish it at the end of 1998. And again, it does fine. It does okay. I mean, it does better on console than it did on PC, because console's a little more mainstream. It's not a blockbuster hit. Exactly. Meanwhile, Sam Hauser decides that if they're going to really make it, they need to create a name for themselves and a brand for themselves. Take-Two is a company that is new and relatively small in this video game industry. It's a company that has now been associated with these kind of interactive movies that were this passing fad that never went anywhere. Sam Hauser feels that 
Electronic Arts has a culture and it has a vibe. Now, he's not impressed with Electronic Arts. He feels that their vibe is they're a soulless company that just turns out sequel after sequel after sequel and doesn't really care. But they still have an established aesthetic. They still have an established people know what Electronic Arts means. People know what Activision means. People know what Nintendo means, etc. He feels that Take-Two needs its own brand that can push through this noise, and the Take-Two brand is not going to be the one that can do it, because Take-Two is kind of already associated with this hell, a cyberpunk thriller. No good. He tells Ryan Brandt that what they really need to do is they need to found a subsidiary company of Take-Two that can be the hot label that provides all the hottest games, and he's thinking in terms of this same kind of aesthetic, this same kind of idea as what something like Def Jam Records did, where it's very hip, it's very modern, it's very latest New York style, guerrilla marketing, underground, street level, hip, cool, everything that's great about America in that sense, the way that Sam Hauser sees everything as being great about America. He and Donovan and King brainstorm, they're trying to think of what the name for this label could be, and they come up with the idea of grudge games. Because it just sounds edgy. It sounds dangerous. And that's what they want. They want something that seems a little dangerous, a little scary, just like the biggest hip-hop acts, just like New York City itself, which always has kind of that edge of danger to it in this time period before it really started cleaning up and gentrifying a few years later. They take that name to Ryan Brandt, and Brandt says, I don't know about that. It feels a little too negative. I mean, he's not against edgy. Brant's a brash guy himself. He's not in any way against edgy, but he thinks it's got too negative a connotation because a grudge is something that you hold that's unpleasant. It's something you hold against someone you don't like. It's just too negative. So they go back to the drawing board and they keep thinking and they settle on Rockstar because it hits several notes that they're looking for. The idea of the Rockstar as someone who is larger than life. The real rock stars from back in the day, people like Keith Richards, Robert Plant, and Pete Townsend, these people who lived public and often drug-filled, outrageous lives. This idea of larger than life and a little bit edgy and a little bit dangerous, but also something that doesn't exist anymore, like It's calling back to the past and lamenting that this kind of thing doesn't exist anymore because, you know, even by the mid-90s, you know, rock stars weren't really rock stars anymore in the same way they had been, which, you know, in a lot of ways was probably for the best, but still it, it didn't have the same mystique that it used to. So they decide that they are going to be rock star games. They're still part of Take Two. Take Two Interactive is the parent. But Rockstar Games is going to be this label and this independent organization within Take-Two that is run by Sam Hauser and is dedicated to bringing new, hip, edgy, modern, cool entertainment to the interactive space. Stuff that appeals to adults as much as it does kids. Stuff that can be more serious, can be more grounded in realism, doesn't have to be Mario saving the princess doesn't have to be a fantasy RPG with elves and dwarves and stuff running around. Doesn't even have to be something like Doom, which is edgy in its own way, but is still science fiction with demons from hell. 
Rockstar is going to be the label that changes entertainment according to Sam Hauser's vision. At least that's how Sam Hauser sees it. As we'll see as we continue this journey through the Grand Theft Auto series in part two, Rockstar is going to pretty much achieve that vision that Sam Hauser sees for it. I mean, they're still around today, so of course they have to continue on with it. Absolutely. That's the perfect place to kind of end it here. We've got Grand Theft Auto out. You know, Grand Theft Auto was not released by Rockstar. Never by Rockstar. I mean, re-releases were by Rockstar, obviously. But it was originally released by BMG Interactive in the UK on PC platforms. Then it was released by the incredibly obscure ASC Games in the United States on computer platforms. Then it was released by Take-Two on the PlayStation. But before the Rockstar label was formed in December of 1998. Sam Hauser was involved with the original Grand Theft Auto because he was leading product development at BMG Interactive International at the time it was going on, but he wasn't the primary shaper of it. His role was basically just getting builds in from DMA as they were making the game and commenting on this, making suggestions on that, being a cheerleader for it, championing it within the company. Grand Theft Auto 2, as we're going to see next time, is still more driven, I think, by DMA than it is by Hauser. But then as we move into Grand Theft Auto 3 and the games that followed on the PlayStation 2, that is when Sam Hauser and his brother on the writing side, Dan Hauser, really start creating the vision. And when Grand Theft Auto really becomes Grand Theft Auto as we think of it today. And that will be our topic of conversation as as we move into part two of this look. Don't often do multi-part episodes on game series. We did it with Ultima. We don't do it often, but if there's a game series that deserves it, it's it's definitely Grand Theft Auto. Well, I guess that's going to be your Christmas present this year, kids. Grand Theft Auto Part 2. We will see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Give us a review on your favorite podcasting service. Getting the word out helps us grow. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 